Alright, tonight we're going to finish, I hope, chapter 12. <clears throat> this chapter is about, the, the whole chapter is about discipline, but it poses a kind of problem in that it's talking about suffering, and we might mistake suffering with God willing our suffering. That is, uh, in, in various explanations of evil, sometimes there is the attempt to justify suffering as a kind of discipline which God causes or brings about directly. And in the more perverse case, evil is thought to be caused by God so as to bring about discipline in our lives. So I think I don't want us to make that mistake, and so I want to address that a little bit right before we read this section. So I don't I don't think that it's where these verses uh, that they can be saying evil is God's instrument that he employs or he does to bring about better people. Uh, This is often called a soul-making theodicy, that God does evil to bring about a greater good. I think that's precisely not biblical. And it would make evil a necessary part of God's plan. This is a part of Protestantism, some forms of Protestantism, some... uh, Calvinism, uh, but you'll see it even in a broader sense than that. And there are, there are many passages, and even the writer here in this section that we're looking at quotes which speak of suffering as a kind of discipline employed by God. And so the question I'm asking here is how do we make sense of these passages? And the place that I want to look at mainly is the book of Job, which will speak extensively about the discipline of the Lord. But in the case of Job, of course, it's the friends of Job who are explaining to Job that, oh, this is happening to you because God's disciplining you or God's punishing you. Uh, And so killing off his family, well, that seems a kind of a harsh discipline for Job, but think of his children. <laughs> uh, what lesson are they learning? Uh, what you know, uh, in, in a soul-making theodicy in which evil is employed by God directly to make us better people, you know, think here, how would you account for the Holocaust or the death of the innocent or the death of anyone, for that matter? Because killing does not seem to be a lesson which can leave anybody, you know, the person doesn't survive to learn the lesson. And so not all suffering and death can be equated with God's discipline or punishment. There's evil, there's real evil in the world that cannot be accounted for. And I think we need, that's the the key here. You know, Jesus makes the same point that when the disciples are, they come and say, what about those people that were killed by the Tower of Siloam? Uh, was that was God punishing them? And he says, you know, or the man who uh, was crippled, was this, this a result of the man's sin? And Jesus says, no, that's not the reason for the, the suffering or death of these people. So once we get that straight, there is evil, there is suffering. But then the next question is, yeah, but how can suffering be experienced as a discipline? And what makes it a discipline? And the writer is going to speak of a capacity for endurance. And he includes here the cross of Christ as the model for 
producing patient endurance. You know, uh, 12, 1 to 2, we've already read. Let us run with endurance the race that is before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And so his endurance, his notion of uh, resurrection, of being glorified, seated at the right hand of God, uh, is the means by which I think suffering, mere suffering, evil even, is transformed. 12.3, consider him who has, has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He's precisely talking about persecution, hostility towards Christians, evil that people might do as they did to Christ, but that can be transformed into a positive thing. That doesn't mean that it is positive or that God does it. It just means that the endurance of the suffering uh, can be used as a kind of uh, trial for learning patience and endurance. So God doesn't cause this hostility. Uh, there is a hostility to God, and I think that's what he's talking about, specifically the, the nature of this suffering. And the way in which one endures this hostility is the, the point. And so Christians are not, you know, we might think, well, we're to create some sort of uh, fortress or protection maybe we should all start carrying guns to church and shooting bad people maybe we should uh, in fact make you know all the things that you're going to hear but what the writer is describing is that's precisely we're not to uh, make a fortress or a city to ward off this hostility at the end of the chapter or in chapter 13 he's going to say that you are to be like the the Levites, or he's going to compare, you know, the Levites were characterized by their, they were not part of the census of the men of Israel for those who would go to war. Uh, and so, like the Levites, or even, even beyond that, we are to absorb the world's hostility, and that's what changes it. So all discipline, Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And this theme of peaceful righteousness is going to be thematic. In fact, I think we could take that as our heading. Uh, the, the particular suffering that Hebrews is describing, this hostility, this open aggression, against God and his children uh, is going to be transformed into a kingdom of peace. That, and, and so we're not just talking about any, any suffering. I have to tell you that part of what I'm thinking about when I was in Japan, there is a kind of theology in the Japanese context that just equates suffering with redemption or suffering as salvific. Is suffering salvific? No, suffering is futile. Suffering is is always a futility, and I don't think we, that just you know any kind of suffering is a futility. 
So, so it's wrong to equate suffering with sin all the time, and it's wrong to equate it with being saint or whatever you just said. That it's being redemptive or salvific. In other words, the suffering per se, it can be made into a situation that it is a, it teaches us growth and endurance, but from that, it's a, we need to nuance that so that we don't equate suffering with some kind of sanctification. This, by the way, if you, if you, you know, this is, people misunderstand Jürgen Moltmann's theology. And Moltmann came to Japan uh, and said, no, I think you guys misunderstood what I was saying. Uh, that, and maybe part of it is Moltmann and maybe a Lutheran understanding in which death is pictured as, you know, that God is pictured as suffering. And, well, but we don't need to go there. But if we, if we look at the friends of Job, uh, and I think we can say with this, how we handle the problem of evil or suffering will determine what we think God's relation, how we understand God's relation to the world. Uh, Is evil simply the punishment for sin? Is it a kind of cosmic discipline in which evil is meted out for evil? You know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And there is this kind of balance. That's what the friends of Job are saying. They're picturing a kind of closed system in which justice is meted out in the world. So if you suffer, you're suffering because God is punishing you. And of course, that's precisely what Job, the book of Job is teaching us is not the case. The world is not a closed system which explains itself. Meaning that we do not necessarily have some theodicy or explanation for evil. And so the problem with theodicies is that in explaining evil, they imagine the world is okay the way it is. And if the world is okay the way it is, then the problem is do we need the cross? You know, do we need the defeat of Satan? Well, that would we would say, well, Satan, evil, all of that's just part of. God's plan, which I think is a kind of an abomination. And the danger is that we'll lose the real presence of God. So the place that God shows up, and this is what Hebrews is saying, is not in the systems of the world, you know, uh, that everything's made just, and, but in the, the, in the way in which they failed, in the place in which there is suffering and evil, Indeed, we encounter God there, not because he has caused it, but in fact because he's working in those situations uh, through Christ to defeat evil and suffering. The way that uh, Philip Nemo has put this, he says there's an excess of evil to account for it. Uh, Suffering will come in this world, but there's an excess of suffering, and there's an excess of evil. Uh, and we can't just mark it all up and say, oh, well, that's God's discipline. It's a way of making us better persons. Uh, I think that's a tragedy here. We don't, so we don't want to leave Hebrews. You know, it's not a soul-making theodicy that's being taught in chapter 12. You know, the, the specific focus of Hebrews is that he shared our humanity that he might destroy the one who holds the power of death. 
So there is a real world defeat of evil. Now, having said that, there neither in Job or in Scripture is there an explanation for Satan or you know what's that what's that snake doing in the garden? We don't necessarily have that explanation, and I'm not sure we should demand an explanation. And the danger is in in providing an explanation that will justify the need for Satan or will justify the need for evil. Let me read this from Job. And think of this as Christ speaking these words. Look at me and be astonished and put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember, I am disturbed, and horror takes hold of my flesh. Why do the wicked still live? Continue on also and become very powerful. Their descendants are established with them in their sight, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and the rod of God is not on them. Uh... Job, I think, is a Christ-like figure pointing to the fact in his own suffering that there is too much evil to be accounted for in the world. Now, Job 19 is specifically messianic in a potential resolution to this evil. Um, If you had to pinpoint what Job is saying, he's saying that his disease is really what's behind all living things that it's pointing to the the problem of suffering and death. All are linked then even more than just suffering and death but to an existential realization. Uh, The more I think the greater grows my dread. Uh, the, the, The idea that my life passes by as quickly as a shuttle, you know, a weaver's shuttle. I'll throw in a little Jacques Lacan here. He says, the truth of neurotic suffering is having the truth as cause. The idea is that there may be a reason people are neurotic. There may be a real-world reason, and of course Lacan, like Job, is going to connect it to death, to the problem of death. Uh, The horror and evil are not passed over, they're pointed at in both Job and Christ, and even we can say they're accentuated. That here is a... Huh? What was the quote? The death suffering... the same quote you said earlier. The truth of neurotic suffering is having the truth as cause. Okay. cause. The way that Nemo puts this, if anxiety obligates one to the truth, It is to a truth that is a disorder and a disruption of normal life. Proof that the living, for the most part, live by an error. That is, that people that do not suffer, people that imagine that everything, I'm okay and you're okay, they do this enabled by living by a kind of false consciousness. Uh, I just watched uh, Jim. Do you know who Jim Carrey is? Jim Carrey does the the. Uh, I do- watched the documentary he did of uh, of Andy Kaufman. You remember Andy Kaufman? 
and the thing that the documentary actually is much better than the movie uh, because what uh, Carrie does he goes into the character of Andy Kaufman for the entire filming of the movie I mean 24 hours a day he's Andy Kaufman or that you know Kaufman also had these various characters uh, that one was a kind of lounge singer that was a really mean lounge and it's painful to watch but what what Carrie says at the end of this is I don't know who I am anymore and he he recognizes that even Jim Carrey is a kind of construct is a kind of false consciousness uh, and that's, I think, the, the point that Nemo or Lacan are making here, is that if we don't recognize that we tend to put on a false consciousness, we tend to make life more normal than it actually should be. Job says, all my fears now come true, what I dread befalls me. I hope for happiness, but sorrow overcame me. I looked for light but there was darkness. And so Job is obliged to consign his entire existence. Death is actually, uh, uh, would be a relief for Job. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and rubbed my brow in the dust. And so the idea is that what the order of normal time implies, that there there is no end to this time, that there is... Uh, no transcendence, that time is infinite, there is no end, there is a kind of unendurable suffering because time seems to just be the case. Um, as Job says, life passes too quickly, death comes too soon. They were born off before their time, swifter than a weaver's shuttle my days have passed. Job is not denying the mystery of God or even denying transcendence. I mean the friends of Job. But the secrets of wisdom in some way are, uh, they, they, his very unknowableness becomes a kind of known attribute, a part of what we might describe as the system or the instrumentality of the system. And so God is the metaphor for the law itself. And in this sense, he's nothing other, Nemo says, than the mechanism itself, the necessity that regulates the world. And world is yet another name for the same necessity. Everything is cause and effect. Everything is pure reason. Everything is uh, reducible to the law. And it's a justice that eternalizes the world as it is instead of announcing a world where injustice would no longer exist. I think that's the price of explaining evil. That's the price of imagining that suffering is in some way a part of the machine. And what they cannot, you know, the friends of Job cannot forgive about Job is his illness. It projects on their own imminent demise. And so the whole discourse of the friends and the uh, 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 is that of the, you know, they're they're really the guardians of what we might call science, of pure reason or pure law, 
uh, and they imagine that it is a means that, that it has a divine origin. Job, we think, is the earliest book in the Bible. Many would date it before the Pentateuch. And this earliest book in the Bible, I think, is saying this sort of foundationalism, this sort of idea that we have some grand explanation is precisely not the, the case. Um, let me, this is a section from Job 5. So the helpless has hope, and unrighteousness must shut its mouth. Behold, how happy is the man who God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of all the Almighty. Who's saying all of this? This is what the danger I'm warning against in Hebrews. This is actually not Job, but it's the friends of Job. You see what I'm getting at? that I think the friends of Job often are the Calvinists or those who have a theodicy or those who would put their hands on our shoulder when suffering happens and say, this is the discipline of the Lord. Well, that's the language of the friends of Job. It may be that suffering can be transformed into such a thing. Uh, but there is an excess of evil. And of course the idea is that Job is innocent. Whether this is, uh, you know, I think Job is a Christ-like figure in his innocence. And the, the, the fact that he's suffering is pointing to the injustice of the world. There is a triumph of injustice that's repeated again and again in the book of Job. Uh, there is a maximum, and, and what comes with all of this is great fear and anxiety. And, you know, Job says, why evil rather than good? And in the moment that it becomes apparent, this is Nemo, that the world does not exist by itself, that it does not carry within itself a legitimacy and a necessity to be, but is created or is not created according to the caprice of someone. In that moment, the nets of the law fall apart in tatters. Once we, acknowledged e once we acknowledge evil and suffering is a reality, it comes together to point to the necessity of God, of transcendence. Um, if the word of God is to be heard or the presence of God is to be understood, and this, is, you know, this book is all about hearing the word of God in the midst of suffering, the book of Hebrews, we're going to hear that word in the clearing that opens up with the encounter with evil, with the encounter of suffering. It's not that we make it something other than evil and suffering. It's not that people aren't hostile to God, that, are, that people aren't deathly aggressive against his followers. Nonetheless, that situation can be changed up. Job does it in this way, I know that my defender lives and he, the last, will take his stand on earth. After my awakening, he will set me close to him, and from my flesh I shall look on God. He whom I see will take my part. He whom my eyes will gaze on will no longer be a stranger. If you put all the elements together there, I think the writer, or, or Job is saying what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that he had to become human. God had to become human and suffer as we suffered 
that's precisely the, the word redeemer that Job uses. I will see him face to face in the flesh, in my bones. That is that I'm going to encounter one who his, himself. I think it's a, you know, it's usually taken as a messianic passage. He says, henceforth I have a witness in heaven. My defender is there in the height. My own lament is my advocate with God. While my tears flow before him, let this plead for me as I stand before God, as a man will plead for his fellows. So the, the Redeemer who stands surety resides in the height while he stands on the earth, all simultaneously. Job is predicting, I think, what the writer of Hebrews is saying has come true, that heaven and earth have come together in the person and work of Christ. That the body of Christ is the temple where humanity encounters deity. This is the way that Nemo puts it. Here for Job, and I would say as well as Hebrews, the witness in heaven is manifestly divine just because he has a human form just because he is human enough to understand the significance of tears. This witness, therefore, therefore, will be able to defend us with full knowledge of the facts, as a man will plead for his fellows against the accuser, God. To know good and evil, to be able to sort them out, I think that's not the issue here. Because if we do, if we're able to sort out good and evil, we'll miss knowing God. What we have instead is the full acknowledgement of evil and the fact that God is in evil, that, that God is defeating evil in and through the cross of Christ. And this is beyond any kind of technical, scientific, rationalistic, uh, reasonable encounter with God. Um, so we could say that God, this is the way Nemo says it, God and good, goodness are an open possibility beyond every failure of technique. It is not through denying or turning away from suffering that we see the presence of God. It is by entering into the truth of these realities. By bearing suffering along with Christ, we testify to the transcendent reality he is bringing to bear on the world. So in Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the dilemma Job raises turns into fact. Here is the reality that Job, I think, predicts. Here is the tell of terror come true. Jesus is Job. Not in the sense of being an ancient, you know, patriarch, divide, you know, uh, deprived of flocks and family, but in living the life of full faith, faithfulness uh, that he's in, you know, saying that we are to be true and faithful as he's true. As Romans says, all Christians, uh, you know, the, the cope with suffering creation uh, that we begin to, to uh, recognize that there is a redemptive work with Christ crucified, with the hope of grace uh, great enough to call out actual, maybe sometimes unbearable suffering. This is, you know, he goes through the list of suffering there in Romans. And yet the glory as yet unrevealed is in store for us and we're able to endure that suffering. 
Here is Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to a myriad of angels. Uh, Hebrews 12, 14. This is a, not a blood which gives itself over uh, to, blend, to, 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 to revenge. He says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctif sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. He's going to end the book with the phrase, Now the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will. Uh, what I think is being pictured, he says that in 13, 13, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. That is, we're calling the suffering down upon ourselves. We're calling the reproach that he experienced down on ourselves. He says, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So pursuing peace and holiness gets filled out by, uh, you know, he's, he's going to say, avoid bitterness right here, and pursue sanctity. But I think the ultimate way that we do this is to be found in understanding the city that we, that we pursue. And he contrasts Sinai and Zion. You know, you've come to a mountain that cannot be touched. You've come to uh, uh, the church, the firstborn, the living God, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And he's comparing that to Sinai. So we move from Sinai to Zion, a different city. We go to him outside the city. We expose ourselves to the contempt of the cross. And I think that's the way that we experience this suffering then, uh, as discipline. I won't do the rest of this, but I, the, uh, I read an article today. I don't know if any of you saw it. It's uh, David Bentley Hart did a whole thing on he reviewed a book on the death penalty uh, and he goes through and talks about the early church that in the early church to be a part of any kind of retaliatory system to be a soldier to be an executioner all of those were you could not combine that uh, you could not in some way uh, employ violence. You could not in some way employ revenge, even when it was on behalf of the state. And I think we have to bring that in to recognize that's what this new city calls us to. We're not, you know, we're not called to the protection that the cities of this world afford us. Any comment, question before we read? I have a question. Yeah. So when Job remind, remind me of why God, when God talks at the end, he also accuses Job of what, defending himself or something, you know, because his friend Elihu talks after all of his other friends, or maybe he talks even after Job talks. So I think maybe does Job like defend himself after his friends are accusing him of being evil or doing something wrong and then Elihu says 
that they're all wrong, and then maybe God does the same thing? By memory, which is just as crystal clear, no, <laughs> which may be faulty, I'd have to go back and look. But my, if my memory of it is that at the end, that none of the friends get it right, including Elihu. But what God says is that Job is his servant, and Job has spoken the truth, and they have spoken falsehood. The book of Job is picturing, you know, that it's this long, you know, if you go through it, I didn't go through it, but you could go through all the friends of Job's explanations. And they all have some explanation for the problem of evil. And I think the point of the book of Job is they're all wrong. Does the book of Job give us an explanation for the problem of evil? I don't think it's there. But that's a sketchy kind of uh, understanding. Uh, the the book, you know, Philip Nemo has written a commentary on the book of Job, and <coughs> that's who I was referencing there. Somebody else said I had a question. Not that I didn't. Was that enough on yours? Yeah, I just had to look at it again. I'd have that's to look at it again. Too. Was yeah. That even that God humbles Job. Also, and that Elihu is like the youngest one, and he waits till the end, and then says, "You're all wrong." And then, yeah. But I assume if that if that's what if I'm remembering right, then I assume like whatever Job does, whatever his tendency is, would be ours as well. So if someone, you know, like. If your friends are coming and saying, well, this is why this is happening, God wanted this to happen, or if you wouldn't have done this and it wouldn't have happened. If Job is also wrong eventually in defending himself for saying that he's innocent, then I would think that that would also, like, that would also be our tendency. Not that he still like wouldn't be a Christ-like figure in many ways and the suffering that he goes through, but like when eventually hearing that it, you're to blame, you're to blame for the suffering that you have. Like eventually, I think we we would want to defend ourselves, you know, and say no, I didn't do anything wrong at all, and so and also have our own reason for why it happens, and then. When I think what God says is like, no, you don't have the answer. Like, we, we, you don't know. But, I don't know, that, that's just what I was wondering. Yeah, I have to look at Elihu, uh, Elihu's speech. I'd have to look at it again. But I think the key passage is the chapter 19 where Job kind of make, leaps to this understanding I have a redeemer. My redeemer lives, and I shall see him face to face. And that, uh, in some way, my redeemer is my judge, and the judge is my redeemer. So that uh, whatever Job, you know, might be saying about his own guilt or innocence, ultimately, I think that for for all of us, that's the. Is that an explanation? No, it's a hope. It's not so much an explanation. 
So make every effort to live in peace, I think, is the heading. And then he's going to describe how to do that. He's going to conclude the book, May the God of Peace you know, be with you. He's describing how to gain this peace. Uh, the, and with this, you know, the idea of without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That we arrive at the God of Peace through holiness, through sanctification, and see to it that no one misses the grace of God. What do you think that means? Sharon? Why'd you say that? That we're not God, so we don't get to decide who gets grace and who doesn't. And we decide who doesn't get grace and we're playing God. But shouldn't we be God's executioners? And no. when there is great evil in the world, that we are the ones who... Obviously, yeah. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good place for you. Yeah, I think not. I think that... that the idea, this was Art, David Hart, Bentley Hart's point about capital punishment, but we could extend it to every area. We don't get to, to, that's not the business that we're in as Christians, but we extend God's grace through peace, that we absorb the hostility of the world, that we're not in the business of the punishments, uh, uh, meting out the punishments of the law. And that if we do this, he says that we will avoid the root of bitterness. No bitter root grows up to cause trouble. And so I think the idea of envy or bitterness uh, is the precise opposite of peaceableness. Uh, that's what uh, sets us over and against one another in the end. And then he used the case of Esau. Why do you think he used that, Michael? I'm asking you because I really don't know. Well, the, sorry, I was reading. He used the example of Jacob and Esau. Hmm. And uh, the Esau who sells out his inheritance. And I guess the idea is that we can sell out our inheritance for a something that a, a th for sensuousness or you know what was it a, a pot of stew could have been as simple as Christians being kept out of the economy no hey say you're not a Christian we'll let you buy this food or whatever or it could be what Michael's about to say <laughs> let me say what you said and see if I heard you right that as Christians we check out of this world's economy. That we don't, in other words, that, the, the, <laughs> that was literally what I heard. Yeah, well, I was thinking that it could be that, you know, it's the whole idea, or part of the idea of Hebrews is that these are Hebrew Christians that have been pressured by the society around them. That says they haven't gone to the point of, in their resistance of shedding blood, but maybe the society around them is keeping them out of the economy for like being able to buy food or something there's some of them who are like hey you know apostatize step on the tile or whatever and we'll let you buy food again could be cutting them out of it so it could be something as simple as just that being these all reference where they get to be buying food again 
which uh, the, the reference to silence, I don't know if all of you saw the movie Silence, stepping on the fumier or the image of Christ or Mary. Were you there with us, Miguel? So, yeah, in Japan, if you wanted to be part of the, uh, the, the economy, the, the in God's grace by being holy because we holiness is set apart but the idea of holiness is that in some way we're set apart from as Jake is describing that this world systems that if we if we just get consumed or taken up into this world systems in some way the grace of God which would establish us outside the city is lost but I, that, I'm not addressing what you're saying. I'm just adding on to it. Yeah. The grace of God. How you know? I, I think that in the end, you know, Miguel's question is it salvific? And I don't know that. In other words, I get confused about. It. I don't think we can necessarily always name the way or describe exactly in all places at all times how God's grace and God's redemption is working itself out. But what is being described in scripture is universal redemption. That is that the cosmos itself is being redeemed. And we could say that all peoples are being redeemed. Let me state it in a strange way. Everyone is saved, but some are not. Which is a paradox, and but I think that's the paradox that we're presented with in the New Testament. In some way, there is cosmic salvation, there is God's universal grace being offered to the world. It is channeled, I think, certainly through the church and through Christ. And God, though, is at work in all the world. And so when Jesus, you know, the disciples come back and they've encountered some who are casting out demons, but they're you know, Jesus says, well, don't stop them, don't prohibit them. The idea is that if, if good is being done, it's God that's doing it. If truth is being claimed, no matter in what, you know, all truth is God's truth. Which is not an answer, you know, it's not an explanation. It, it, what, what it is, it's creating, it's a description in which there is an inherent tension. I don't know how this cosmic redemption is working itself out in every instance. But I do know that it's working itself out in Christ and through the church and in and through uh, God's grace it's, as it's given to us in, in and through this peaceable kingdom that's being described here. Which maybe not Let's just do a couple more verses. We're running late here. Uh, But I think this may get to what you guys are asking. Miguel, would you be willing to read down to verse uh, 21 from 18 to 21? We'll take any version. Oh, I like King James. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burn with fire, nor unto the likeness 
and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure that which was commanded and if so much as a beast touch the mountain it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart and so terrible was the sight uh, Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. And then, Chris, read uh, the next section as a kind of contrast, and we'll stop there. Uh, verse 22 to verse 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels uh, in festive gathering, and to the the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So here's two cities, here's two mountains, here's you know, Sinai and here's Zion. Here's the earthly Jerusalem, and here's the heavenly Jerusalem. Here's the blood of Abel, which, you know, he's been killed, and the blood of Christ, in which there, that it speaks a better word. That is, there is a, the, the idea of redemption, resurrection. He's talked about ascension. Uh, the theophany that was delivered on Sinai was delivered by angels. He's already said that. But this is God himself. Here is, you know, you've encountered a new covenant. Uh, the, f- the church of the firstborn, the company of Israel then was in f- some way foreshadowing this reality of those who have really obtained life. And he's using the language of heaven, not as a distant reality, but as an unchanging reality in which heaven has come to earth in this new city, this new people, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And so he's contrasting the punishing effects of the law, which could not, does not allow for approach to God, in which they said, Moses and Aaron, you go up. And of course, Moses and Aaron were the only ones allowed to approach the mountain, whereas any other person or even animal that touched the mountain was killed. Uh, that this theophany, this is in some way falls short of the reality which we've obtained in Christ. I think this is the key, understanding the nature of these two cities. The peaceable kingdom and the peaceable city is one that we obtain. <coughs> I don't think not, he's not describing an immaterial reality, because certainly the blood of Christ and the body of Christ is a material reality. But it is a, a, a transcendent reality, then. It is a, an alternative age that has invaded this age. It is the heaven come to earth. Uh, and, of course, the whole idea that they couldn't even hear, uh, they, they didn't want to hear the voice of God. But now, uh, you know, the, and he's going to return. The book is a beautiful, you know, construct and at the end of the book he's going you know he begins the book by talking about the word of God and he's going to end the book talking about that we have this word 
of God made sure. And so this is a word that we can hear, that God has spoken in Christ. So I think that's the idea that uh, of this alternative reality that is made available to us in Christ. But we, any, any comment, question on that section? It's very similar to Romans chapter 12. The passage says, as far as it depends on you, live peace with all men. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is certain vengeance to his mind and outward faith. So, I mean, there's a lot that sounds like that, but especially as far as it depends on you, live in peace with all men. I think that, yeah, that's good. That's a good point. The writer of Hebrews seems very Pauline. I don't think it's Paul, but he certainly is influenced by Paul. Or we could just say that... that influenced by the Sermon on the Mount? Maybe so. May influenced by the Sermon on the maybe Mount. Influenced by Jesus? Influenced by Jesus, yes. Paul was influenced oh, by the Sermon. Yeah. <laughs> I like that, yes. It's actually Priscilla get the credit. And of course, uh, reading this in the way we, we are, that the, the idea of a peaceful city, an alternative kingdom, uh, to in some way not get the point of nonviolence, I think you're going to miss the whole point here.